Well, Bel Air, good morning. What a beautiful day it is of worship so far. You know, I want to let you know that we're in the middle of a series right now. Some of you have tracked with us each week. Some of you are newer to Bel Air. And if you are newer, I just want to catch up very briefly. We're in the middle of a series called Thrive. And we're exploring what this kingdom of God is that Jesus continually refers to in His ministry. And in the first week, and you can go back, you can go on our website and, and listen to some of these messages. You can go to iTunes and, you know, get the podcast. You can catch up. But very quickly, in the beginning of this sermon series, of which we're now six weeks in, in that first week, we saw how Jesus described the kingdom of God. And as He described it to us, He was the expert. We were the ones that needed the teaching. But additionally, he reminded us that you can't settle for a second-hand account of the kingdom of God. It can be described to you, but it's nothing like actually experiencing it firsthand. And then that second week, we explored, okay, what does it mean for us to enter into the kingdom of God? And some of you are like, why is there a door? It's because you missed the second week. And some of you are like, are you under construction because there's a door? No, it's because you missed the second week. And the second week was… This reminder that Jesus says, I am the door, and all who enter through me shall be saved. And there's this amazing truth that Jesus gives us. He says to enter into the kingdom of God, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to go on this long journey. It's not at the end of your life. It's not after doing all these things or avoiding all these things, simply through faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's it. You enter into the kingdom of God of God. And that can happen now. And 17 people across our services on that Sunday said, I want to choose Jesus as Lord, as Savior. And in that moment, they entered into the kingdom of God. God's Spirit dwelled in them. God looks at them and says, you are my beloved child. But there's more. As the weeks went on, we explored what it means to now explore the kingdom of God. Yes, it's one thing to, to enter in, but then you've got to get out and you've got to explore it. In some ways, it would be crazy for somebody to go to LAX, the airport right down the road, and spend five years inside the terminal right next to the gate. It would be crazy for them if they then said, I know everything there is to know about Los Angeles. We think it would be crazy because you'd say, no, 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 you've got to You've got to leave the gate behind. You've got, to, you've got to go explore the city. You've got to leave the airport. You can't just land here and then just sit and wait. And if you're on campus today, you'll, you'll notice a door that's out on the patio, and actually it's a, it's a door that has, not I've gotten these emails that say, Drew, the welcome mats are on the wrong side of the door. Help me understand this. And if you're on campus, you'll know what I'm talking about, but there's, there's like 10 welcome mats that, yes, usually they're on the outside of the door to welcome you in, but we put these welcome mats on the inside of the door because I really believe that every moment of every day is an invitation that Jesus has given us to explore the kingdom of God. And those welcome mats have, have verses on them, commands from Scripture. And every time we put into practice the teaching of Jesus, we are exploring more and more of the kingdom of God. Of God. As C.S. Lewis says, we go further up and further into this kingdom. The week after that, we took a look at what it means for us to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus very emphatically says that you have to be born from above before you can see the kingdom. And last week, we took a look at what it means for us to treasure the kingdom of God. And this amazing twist that we see that actually we are the pearl. We're the one that Jesus sells everything for just to have us. 
And so here we are today in the second to last week before Mark Laberton, the, the, the president of Fuller Seminary, he'll be with us next week. But before we get to that, here we are today talking about what does it mean for us to invest in the kingdom of God? Well, before I share, I want some of you to share. In fact, I've asked some of you, how do you invest in the kingdom of God? Take a look at this. The way I invested the kingdom here at church is, um, first, first of all, I, with the youth department, with my children. I was very involved at the time. And then as they grew older and I graduated from uh, junior high and high school activities, I went into church leadership, which I very much enjoyed, and um, served in a, a lot of different ways, including being uh, an elder on session. We found out recently that there's a lot of lonely people that attend Bel Air. And it's kind of a large church and you can kind of get lost. And so we, through Stephen Ministry, try to reach out to people who may be going through some crisis in their life, whether it be a personal relationship or even a relationship with God. I remember when I was in my first small group and um, they started explaining to me about tithing. I'm like, what? Wait a minute, 10%? That's a lot. I, I remember the first time that my wife and I made what for us was a significant um, and a financial contribution to the church and all of its ministries. I thought, um, based on what we had given the previous year, I thought, I'm gonna really up it this year. I'm probably gonna shock her. And we would literally, we'd pray about it and we'd each write a number on a piece of paper and then show each other. And I thought, I'm gonna come up with a number that's gonna kinda scare her a little bit, which is probably good. And so I did that and I showed her the number and her number was about 30% bigger than mine. So she scared me and we did it though. I've seen how God can just provide for you if you just give him whatever he's first given you. So I've tried my best to, once I've come here, I'm living on my own to give that 10% to God. And, um, you know, God also said he wants you to be give like a happy heart. And so if it's not there, and there's been times whenever I wrote checks and just about to cry in church because I knew that this was going to be something that God was going to have to pull through for me. And, and, and he always has, whether it's been through money or or just showing me grace through other other ways that money's not everything. Um, that's that's huge. Like it's very important to me to to show that I will not bow down to money in a place where money is everything. Tithing, I think God calls us to tithe with our money, but I think He also calls us to tithe or ten percent with our time and with our love and with our energy and with our our hearts and our service. When we find that we can't meet that same level of financial giving. We kind of dig in and look for opportunities to serve. And that means we don't sit there and wait to be asked, hey, would you guys please do X, or we really need people to do Y. Uh, it's us looking and saying, hey, we can be substitute teachers for the Sunday school, or we can put together food baskets. This church has so much to offer, but you have to step up. You, you, you may have to remind them once or twice that you're interested in doing something, or you, you could get lost in the shuffle. So don't give up. Keep the faith that if you need help, you'll get it. And if you want to serve, there's a place for you. So as we hear these stories, and let's, yeah, let's thank them. You know, remember, I've been defining, really what Scripture does is defines the kingdom of God not just as a place, it's not just a group of people, but it's wherever the royal reign, the royal power, the royal rule of God is experienced. Or as Dallas Willard says, it's wherever, whenever, what the king wants to get done, it actually gets done. 
That's the kingdom of God. And so whenever we allow Jesus to have authority over us, to, to guide our decisions, to guide our, our actions, to, to shape how we navigate through a circumstance, we actually are ushering in the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. So you hear these stories from you. This is how you invest in the kingdom of God. There's such a diversity in how we can invest in God's kingdom with Jesus as king. Some of us, we hear it, it's these finances that as we give to what God is doing. In some ways, you hear these stories of people stretching and saying, okay, uh, you know, I want to give more to what God is doing. And, and God, would you, would you help me to do that? And it's amazing to hear these stories of, of, of even not knowing where the next paycheck's going to come, but still saying, Jesus, I trust you. You're my king. You tell me that all I have is a gift from you, so I'm going to be a good steward with that. We also hear these stories of time in which we, we have this time and it's so easy to spend it on ourselves, but if we spend it on others or if we spend our time on the things that Jesus as King delights and desires for us to spend it on, that we're, we're investing in the kingdom of God. Really, when you think about it, every moment of every day is an opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. You think about your job, you think about your relationships, you think about your commute even. Imagine if you thought of your commute, I'm talking to myself, you can listen in for a second. Imagine, Drew, if you think of your commute as like this thing that God has given you, He's entrusted with you, what would it look like to be a good steward of that, to actually invest in the things that God loves during that commute rather than be like, man, I just got to get there, get out of my way. There's these relationships that God has entrusted us with, our friends, our family, uh, our, our roommates our neighbors, our coworkers, and in so many ways we can invest in the kingdom of God when we put into practice this life that Jesus defines for us. He says, this is, this is how you want to have a healthy relationship. Here's what you got to do. And I think of this um, workshop that we have next Saturday that's coming up right here in the Discipleship Center. You heard about it a moment ago. It's, it's where, man, I'm a people pleaser. And when I'm pleasing people rather than pleasing the king of the universe, I'm building my kingdom rather than God's kingdom. So if I can learn how to not be a people pleaser but to be obedient to God, to follow Him, to learn some foundations, some healthy principles, how to have healthy relationships, to, to not be so codependent on others, if, if I can do these things, then all of a sudden, even in that, it's not just a program I show up to, but I'm actually investing in the kingdom of God in my life. We're going to explore some ways in which we can invest in the kingdom of God as we turn to Scripture. So first, let's look at the screens because I have a, a translation from the New International Version. Then we'll go to what we have in our pews in front of us. But I'm going to read this to you. This is one of many places in which Jesus talks about investing in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is speaking. This is right before He is about to enter into Jerusalem, and He says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. 
Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposits that when I came back, I could have canceled or I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is God's word. Oh my. Did I really include verse 27 in that? Some of you might say, Drew, why didn't you just stop at 26? I mean, there's, there's some guests here. They're sitting right next to me. I, I told them to come. They'll like it. What are you talking about? And that verse 27, I don't want to tiptoe around it. You see Luke chapter 19, verse 27. That verse, taken out of context, misinterpreted, was the theological foundation for the Crusades that killed millions of people. This one verse is why many atheists say, I would never believe in that kind of a God because the reported Son of God is saying right then and there, bring people in front of Him and kill Him. So let's take care of verse 27 before we rewind and take a look at what it means for us to invest in the kingdom of God. You see, you've got to understand the cultural context in which Jesus is sharing this parable. And as he shares this parable, you have to understand that he's living in a time where there are kings, very different than here we have in the United States. And one of those kings was a guy named Herod the Great. And so when Jesus was born, Herod the Great had been appointed king of the Jews. He was the ruler over the nation of Israel, but he was appointed ruler by the Caesar who was the ruler of Rome. You see, Rome and its entire empire included the area in which Israel was living. And so here you have this, this man who is king of the Jews, Herod the Great, who, man, he was a nasty man, nasty man. I mean, he had, he had I think it was 45 kids from multiple wives, but then all of a sudden he didn't really trust the wife that he really reportedly loved the most, and so he had her killed because he thought she was going to take over his kingdom. And then he didn't like his mother-in-law, so, you know, she's gone. That's the kind of guy he is. And as, as time went by, people just they couldn't stand him. They hated him. You actually see in Scripture, Herod the Great mentioned, when Jesus is born, Herod the Great is so fearful, hears that there's actually going to be one who will rise up to take over his empire, take over his kingdom. So it's like infanticide. He's trying to kill all the infants, hoping to get the one and so they take Joseph and Mary, you know this perhaps from, from the, the nativity story, they take Jesus to Egypt to flee from Herod the Great's massacre. 
And so Herod the Great was so bad that, and he knew that, man, one day when I die, people hate me so much that nobody's going to cry over my death. So guess what he does? This is the kind of guy he is. He gives orders that on the day that he dies, that his military would go and kill the top 12 most influential people of the nation of Israel so that they would mourn over them so that when he dies, people would be crying on the day that he dies. That's the kind of guy he is. And actually, when he does die, there are seven different wills that he leaves, and they're trying to figure out, okay, who, which one of his sons does the kingdom go to? And so there were kind of three sons that were jockeying for power, and one of them was this guy named Archelaus. And Archelaus, right before he goes to Rome to get the authority from Caesar to come back to be king of the Jews, before he does that, he has his military kill 3,000 Jewish people on Passover in Jerusalem just outside the temple. Now, we're so removed from that moment emotionally that we're like, okay, 3,000, that's a lot. That's 20 three more than were killed in the 9-11 attacks here in the United States. Man, and we're still recovering from that event a decade and a half later. And so he has these people killed in Jerusalem just outside the temple. And he goes to Rome, goes to Caesar to get the authorization so he can come back and be king. And so the leaders of the nation of Israel, they don't want this guy to rule over them. So they send a delegation of 50 people. And they go to Caesar. Achilles shows up and he says, make me king. And the 50 delegates, they say, no, 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 don't make this man king. He's harsh. He's awful. He just killed. He massacred 3,000 people. We would rather have the Syrian government a pagan nation rule over us than this guy Archelaus. And so Caesar, he's in charge, doesn't want these people to tell him what to do. He says, no, Archelaus is going to go back. He's going to rule over you. But then for some reason, he actually doesn't make him king. He's not officially king, but he says, you are in charge, and now you are going to rule over them. And so he comes back to Jerusalem as an imposter king. And what happens to those 50 delegates? This is written about in, in the history books by Josephus, who, who's not a Christian. He's, he's a, one of the greatest Jewish historians, and he writes about this, that this new imposter king, Archelaus, brings those 50 delegates before him, and right before his eyes, he orders his friends to massacre his enemies right before him. Historical event. And Jesus, on the moment he's about to go into Jerusalem... The moment he's about to go in and people are going to say he is the king, he wants to tell him a story of how different a king he is and how different his kingdom is. And you see, Jesus, he comes in, and in no way can you make the parallel if you understand Scripture, if you understand God, if you understand how God has revealed himself to us. In no way is Jesus saying, Bring the enemies before me and slaughter them in front of me because, no, 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 the complete opposite. He doesn't go to Jerusalem and have his friends kill his enemies. He goes to Jerusalem and in front of his enemies, he allows himself to be killed on a cross so that his enemies might be called friends of God. Complete reversal. The complete opposite of this imposter king, Archelaus. And so Jesus masterfully 
and we have to understand the historical context, is weaving together this historical event, but he's also weaving through the parable of the talents, which we often refer to it, that's found in Matthew. Often when people talk about investing in the kingdom, they think of the parable of the talents where a landowner gives a certain amount of money to different people and they go invest in it and come back. Well, Jesus does that, but he also weaves in this historical event. And some of you might say, well, why didn't you just deal with the Matthew thing? Why waste the time on all this, all this other stuff about Archelaus and all this? I fell asleep, now I'm awake, where are we? What's going on? But I'm telling you this because we have to understand the type of king Jesus is. In order for us to treasure the kingdom, before we invest in the kingdom, we've got to treasure it first. And we'll never treasure the kingdom, nor will we ever invest in the kingdom of God if we misunderstand who our king is, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in many ways, though he doesn't come back and he doesn't say, enemies before me, slay them, in many ways, you see throughout Scripture that he does, he does go to a distant land to get authority for his reign and his rule. And it's not Egypt. It's not Galilee. It's not the United States, as I saw in some blog post this week. And none of that. Scripture says, and actually it's captured in the first Christian hymn, if you were to go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, that's like the first Christian hymn. And it talks about how Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee on earth shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, actually, Jesus has gone to a distant land. He has to go through death in order to do it. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. And Scripture says that there's a day that hasn't happened yet where He will return. Do you realize that as He's about to go into Jerusalem, they think that all of a sudden the kingdom's going to come and happen now. And He says, no, I'm just starting my journey. And I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to have to leave you through the cross and one day I will return to establish forever my kingdom rule on earth, here on earth as it is in heaven, to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And actually, Scripture does say that there will be a judgment for Christians. But we so misunderstand that word judgment. We think of judgment, and we'll get here in a moment. We think kind of like the third servant in the story, which we'll get to in a moment. We think that the judgment's going to be God's going to come and He says, okay, Let's see what you did wrong. Ooh, you're not in. You're out. Let's see what you did right. Not enough. You're out. We think of this judgment as something that we have to be fearful of, but we misunderstand this word judgment. There's two verses that refer to Jesus sitting on a judgment seat. The first is Romans 14.10. If you're taking notes, write that down. You can look at it later. Romans 14.10 where it says, Jesus will return one day as king and he will ask what we've done, what we've entrusted with, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, we, speaking to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you hear that and you're like, what are we talking about, Drew? I don't like judgment. We're not supposed to judge. But this word judgment seat is the word bima. And it's such an amazingly beautiful glorious, enticing word, because that word was used in Roman times when they would have a huge 
competition among athletes. And they would compete, and there would just be this, this amazing competition right before them. The victors, the ones that did better, would receive rewards. They would receive um, spoils. They would receive treasure. They would receive this renown. And there was one person who could determine who won and who was in second, third, and fourth, and it was the person who sat on the bima. The judge who sat on the judgment seat looked out in a positive sense, not in a punishing sense, and says, I see what you've done. You've earned it. I'm going to give you these spoils. Now, I want to be very, very clear here. It's only through faith and trust in Jesus. You, you, you saw me. You, I walked through this door. Only through faith and trust in Jesus. Not earning God's love, not, not living up to some standard. Only through faith and trust in Jesus can we now enter into the kingdom of God. But as we explore the kingdom of God, as we follow Jesus, as we put into practice this life that He has for us, as James says, you know, faith without works is dead. We've got to live into the reality of our faith. There's all these images that when Jesus will return in some future place, I don't know when it is. It could be tonight. It could be next year. It could be a thousand years. We don't know when it is. But we're in this in-between place right now where Jesus as King has left through His death, His burial, His resurrection, will return again to establish His kingdom here, and He's going to ask us a question. What have you done with what I've given you? And whether we do a lot or whether we do a little, if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're part of God's family. We're, part of, we're going to spend eternity with Him in this place where there's no sadness, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no cancer, there's no, there's no heartache, there's no betrayal. But Scripture says that what we do with this life that God has entrusted us with, that we will actually receive these riches in heaven. And Scripture says that, that some of us will receive more riches than others based upon the work that we do here on earth. Now, I want to be very, very clear right from the get-go. I'm human. You're human. When I think of differences, I think unfair. I think of I'm jealous now because you have more. But the truth is in Scripture there's no jealousy. There's no discord. There's no sense of, man, why'd they get more? Why did I get less? less? Or, man, I got more than you. You're, you're less than me. There's none of that. It's just weird. We live in this broken world. We don't understand it. And yet Jesus says, I want you to, to see everything that I've given you. This life, your finances, uh, the relationships, the job you have, your, your talents, your strengths, your weaknesses. If you see it, Jesus says, as mine, as the owner, you have an opportunity to invest in things that have eternal rewards. It's all those verses that say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. What does that mean other than when we invest in God's kingdom through our interactions with one another, when we allow Jesus to be king in our life, when we choose to have integrity in a business decision, when we choose to be faithful to, to, to a spouse, when we choose to be devoted as a parent rather than distracted, when we, when we choose to, to submit in prayer the things that we yearn for, the things that we long for, when we do this, actually, we are investing in God's kingdom. But I've got to tell you, I, I've been walking with Jesus for 14 years, and there was one thing that was the biggest obstacle for me. 
It was the biggest hurdle in my life. Yes, I gave my life to Christ April 8th, 2000. I stepped through the door, but now that I'm in the kingdom, in many ways, in one area of my life, I wasn't a good and faithful servant. And it was in that area that in many ways, I mean, I just got to share it with you. For five years, my wife and I struggled with infertility. And during that time, all of our friends had kids. Uh, we longed to have kids. We prayed for kids. I thought, man, if I just pray more, I'll have a kid. I prayed more, didn't have a kid. We explored adoption. We explored all these things. There's so many amazing ways in which parents are parents and kids are kids to, to, to parents. There's so many beautiful ways in which families are. And we longed in the midst of all that to have our own children. And in my, in my focus on that dream, I asked God to invest in my dream. And because I did not see God investing in my dream to have my own children, there was this kind of like under-the-surface frustration and anger and disappointment with God. And I so wanted a child, but the problem was I wanted a child more than I wanted to just trust God. And so for years, in many ways, I wasn't a good and faithful servant because I allowed this dream to have my own child to take first place over my relationship with God. And as time went by, there was people in my life that actually stepped out and invested in the kingdom of God. They put God first in their life, and I saw it. One of those was in a small group. We were together in a couple small group, and one guy, his name's Brian, close friend of mine, even though he's a huge UCLA fan, I, I, still, I still love him. I forgive him for that. And Brian, in that small group, comes to small group, and he says, you know, we've been here with, the, with the, uh, Drew and Erica, and they've been wanting to have kids, and all of us have kids, and I realize, you know, we've never really prayed for them as a group together. I just feel like God's leading me to say we should kind of cancel this part of the group and just pray for them right now. In that moment, my friend invested in the kingdom of God by simply just praying. He said, I know we've got plans. I know this might disturb like what the leader of the group's wanting to do, but I really feel like God's leading me to say, let's pray. And so we prayed. And other people began to pray. A year goes by, still no child. We're going to doctors. We're, we're they're doing tests. We're trying all these things. And I never will forget. Man, that Monday afternoon where I was sitting next to Erica, across from the, the, the fertility expert, and he said, Drew, Erica, I would give up emotionally and financially in having your own kids. And I leave that office, and I'm in tears. My wife's in tears, and we're just, God, why? We'd be such great parents. Why? Still in that moment, I had put my dream above my relationship with God, and I was asking God, would you invest in my dream? And about two weeks go by, and my wife comes to me, and she says, you know, I've been praying a lot about it, and I, I feel like we've been trying so hard to have our own kids, and I just feel like, you know, as I've been praying, as I've been reading through Scripture, I just feel like... I just feel like we just need to trust Him. And if we never have kids, that's okay. But I feel like we've been trying to just solve this on our own. Let's just, let's just trust Him. And in that moment, my wife invested in the kingdom of God because she allowed Jesus to be the king of her life and she allowed her dream to take second place to this 
trust in God, and she led me in that moment. A little after that, I got a phone call from that same friend, Brian. Yes, I know he went to UCLA, and yes, uh, you know, he's a huge UCLA fan, but I love him. And, and he invested in God's kingdom because he, he had a, a conversation with somebody and heard this news, and he talked to me and said, Drew, you, you're going to get a phone call this week, and you need to take that phone call. And there's a couple that's going to invite you over for dinner, and you've got to trust me, you want to you get together with this couple. So that couple calls us, and I'm trying to make it as short of a story as possible. This is like a four-year journey. And this couple has us over for dinner, a couple that we had known for, boy, almost a decade. They used to be part of the church I used to be at. They had helped plant a church. They were part of our old couple small group. We hadn't seen them in over a year, and they have us over for dinner, and they've got their two young kids running around, so cute. And they looked at us, and they said, Drew, Erica, every time we look at our kids, we realize these kids are a gift from God. And we know, and we've kind of heard through the grapevine, we haven't seen you in a while, but we've heard that, that you guys are, you're, you're struggling. You, you can't get pregnant. We understand, Drew, that, you know, everything works for you, and Eric, everything works for you, and you can make a fertilized embryo, but it's just not sticking. And so, actually, you know, we haven't told you this, but a year ago, we felt like God was prompting us to help you have a child. I'm like, what? And they start to tell us that a year has gone on Whereas a couple, they've been praying, seeking Scripture, seeking God's direction to help us have a child. And, and you know, I'm, I'm eating lasagna, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Put the fork down <laughs> at their house in Camarillo. And she says, you know, husband and I, we've got kids, and the pregnancies have gone well. And we look at Scripture, and Scripture tells us to lay down our lives for one another. Scripture tells us that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our love for one another. We feel like after a year of prayer, we want to offer, I don't know what you think of this, but we would be honored to carry your child. And I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means biologically. Like, what does that mean? You know, like, I'm so slow, right? And so, like, you go to the grocery store, you carry, you know, groceries out, you know, you carry your luggage. How do you carry somebody else's child, right? And she says, as I understand, she says, I've talked to doctors, and my wife is in tears, and I'm like, okay, now I'm crying too. And the, the, the medical term is gestational surrogate. And this is where my wife's and my ingredients, fertilized embryo, are implanted into our friend. And so she's telling us this. I'm like, what? Are you serious? And I turn to the husband, I'm like, are you serious? Like, dude, this is, what a sacrifice. You would do that for us? And that year was them investing in the kingdom of God because they were just simply submitting their lives to Christ, saying, what would you, what would you have us do? And so we went to our family. We went to friends. Uh, we talked to doctors. We talked to lawyers and psychologists, talked to the senior pastor of the church I came from and asking their advice, seeking their direction. And as we continued to move forward with that, we felt like there was all these things that were just lining up when they came to us. And, and then all of a sudden there were some things that happened externally that were coming in that were kind of opposing this. There was intense spiritual warfare, and then people were texting me the next morning saying, man, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was praying for you. I don't know what it was, but this verse came to mind, and I just thought I'd text it to you. And I'm like, that verse is exactly what's going on right now. And there was dozens of stories like this, and there was this moment where I, I said to the couple, I said, okay, there's these outside circumstances kind of happening, and we totally understand if you don't want to move forward with this. And I'd say 99% of the population would say, yeah, you know, we're not going to move forward with this. And they said this, and I'll never forget. They said, Drew, we are so 
believing that God is leading us to do this for you. That if we didn't, we would be disobedient to God. And we would lose all this stuff just so we can continue to be obedient with God. In that moment, they were investing in the kingdom of God. Jesus was being the king of their life. And I said, wow. And as time went on, my son was born. April 15th. 2012, 100% mine and my wife's. He's got our DNA. He's got our blood type. Our friend who's the, the biggest comedian, and, and if this is crass for you, I apologize, but she just said this. She says, I'm just the oven for your bun. I'm just a long-term babysitter. And there was complications in that pregnancy. They were, she was on bed rest. My son was almost born three months premature. There was all these moments where it was so hard to trust Jesus as king. And I get to where I am today. And I think about in the best stories, the best movies, the, the greatest novels, you know, the main character as they go through the, the, the journey, the hero's journey, and, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the hero, but we're all the hero in our own eye and our own journey, but as we go on this journey, in many ways, we're looking for what we want. And the greatest stories are when the, the, the main character doesn't necessarily get what they want, but they get what they need. And the whole time, I thought that what I wanted to have a son was what I really needed. No, what I really needed was to trust Jesus as king of my life. And because what I wanted was this was this family, that had become an idol in my life. That had become more important than just trusting in Jesus as King, as Lord and Savior. And because of that, if Jesus came two years ago and said, what have you done in that area? He would say, Drew, you're a wicked servant. You haven't done anything in that one regard. And I'm telling you that what I'm not saying is, okay, if you have a dream, just pray a little bit more, trust a little bit more, and God will give it to you. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because that would be saying that God invests in your dreams. What I'm saying is this, that whatever dreams you have, whatever unanswered prayers you have, I still have thousands of them. I have dreams that have yet to be fulfilled. I have all these things. I'm saying, God, why would the, I, it seems, it makes sense to me. I mean, it, but the things that we really need are to trust Him as King. To say, these dreams... I don't need you to invest in them. I want to start investing in you and your kingdom. And I'm telling you, the greatest part of the story was not that my son was born. The greatest part of the story were those moments where my friends, where my wife and me, the last one, finally trusted God. That's the real point of the story. And so I have people say to me, you going to have more kids? <laughs> Man, we'd love to. We'd love to adopt. We'd love to have more kids. But we're in this in-between time. So what do we do with these desires? What do we do with the child that our Heavenly Father has gifted us? What do I do with this role as senior pastor? 
What do we do with the people next to us? What do we do with our, our family, our friends, our finances, our time, our treasure, our talents, our, our strengths, and our weaknesses? What do, we, what do we do with that? Would we take one more step forward just seeing Jesus, the good king, who doesn't come and say, measure up, who doesn't say, oh, my enemies, kill them before me, but would we see our king who comes into Jerusalem and in front of his enemies allows himself to be killed so that we might be called friends. Man, the more I look at that Jesus, the more I look at that king, the more I want to invest in his kingdom, the more I want to trust him, the more I want to say, how did I not get it all those years? And then yesterday happens and I take my son for granted, and I'm distracted. Oh, right there, right in front of me. I'm missing the point. So whatever your longings are, whatever your dreams are, whatever you bring into this room, and you say, God, would you invest in my dreams? Would you, would you allow it to be flipped? Would you invest your heart and your mind in God's dreams for your life? Would you not just settle for what you want, but would you allow God to give you what you actually really need? Would you pray with me? God, I confess even in this moment that, man, there's so many ways in which I need to grow as a servant of yours to see that my life, my relationships, the things I own, they're not mine, they're yours. You are the owner. You are the king that has entrusted me with them. May I do something with them for your glory, for your kingdom, so that when you return, you would look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And God, I pray that you would encourage everyone in this room to see you how you want to be seen as the righteous king, the true king, the, the benevolent king who comes to us and lays down his life for us so we might, might have a relationship with you. God, as you treasure us, would we in turn treasure you and invest in your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray, amen.